This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. To learn more, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu slash news. Welcome. I'm Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast for Lehigh University's College of Business. Today is March 8th, 2021, and we're talking with Muja Young about his research looking at how various factors during pregnancy, including light pollution most recently, affect fetal and infant health. Dr. Young holds the Charles William McFarlane Professorship in Economics in Lehigh's College of Business. His research aims to provide empirical evidence on causal relations that have policy implications. Examples in recent years include fetal health effects of long commutes to work during pregnancy, maternal and fetal health effects of working during pregnancy, and the effects of power plant emissions, air pollution, noise pollution, light pollution, and water pollution on fetal and infant health. We'll be talking about all of those. In recent years, a common thread tying together much of your research has been a focus on how a range of factors affects fetal and infant health, including babies born at low birth weight. How did you first become interested in this topic? Well, the story goes back to a study I did about 10 years ago on the impact of California's paid family leave on mothers' breastfeeding behaviors. Well, during that study, I learned that the U.S. is the only high-income country that does not guarantee paid leave to new mothers. I was also shocked to learn that the U.S. is ranked very last on every measure of family-friendly policies among all high-income countries. All these learnings made me become interested in topics related to maternal and infant health. Also, to my surprise, the paper I did on California's paid family leave later was cited by the Council of the District of Columbia regarding Washington, D.C.'s paid family leave, which became effective in 2017. Hmm. This experience let me realize that what we do as a researcher actually can influence policy makings. And I see my research endeavors as a way of speaking for the vulnerable members of a society, such as infants and pregnant women. The latest research you and your colleagues published found that light pollution could increase the likelihood of a preterm birth by 12.9% as a result of nighttime brightness. What are the main sources of light pollution, and what is the connection between nighttime brightness and low birth weight, shortened gestational length, and preterm births? Light pollution includes three components, sky glow, light trespass, and glare. Uh, In our study, we focus on sky glow, which is the main component of the three. Sky glow is a result of artificial lighting at night. One important thing we need to note is that exposure to artificial lighting at night can disrupt a human body's biological clock. Specifically, the disruption is a suppression of the production of melatonin, a hormone that regulates a human's sleep-wake cycle. The biological mechanism underlying our findings and suggested by the medical field includes two parts. One is the impact of sky glow on sleep deprivation through the disruption of the biological clock. And the other is the impact of sleep deprivation 
on adverse birth outcomes through inflammation that results from poor sleep. Now, how extensive is the the problem of light pollution, both in the United States and around the world? It is a worldwide and ongoing problem. In many cities in the U.S., artificial lighting at night is nearly 10 times brighter than natural nighttime light. Studies have shown that in recent years, there has been an increase in light pollution in many countries, and light pollution has remained consistently high in some countries like the U.S., Spain, Italy, and the Netherlands. What, if any, are there policy implications to this study that should be looked at? Uh, Yes, indeed. There have been some legislations going on across the country in the U.S. regarding uh, the proper use of street lights. So all the lights actually should just use for the ground and not just upward lighting positions. So it is about the proper usage of lighting at night, especially for street lighting. All right. Now, light is only the most recent form of pollution you've explored in connection with fetal and infant health, as I mentioned in the introduction. Uh, Let's talk about the others you've studied, starting with air pollution in the form of power plant emissions from a Pennsylvania plant located across the Delaware River from New Jersey. Mm -hmm. What were the main findings of that study, and what did it tell you about the policy implications related to particularly environmental regulations? Mm -hmm. In this study, we find that babies born to mothers living as far as 20 to 30 miles away from the power plant have a higher likelihood of having low birth weight, uh, birth weight below 5.5 pounds by 6.5% during the period when the power plant was in operation. In a follow-up study, we find that the shutdown due to a landmark ruling by the EPA reduces the likelihood of having a low birth weight baby by 15% in the area downwind of the plant. The ruling that eventually led to the shutdown of the plant is the first ever federal level regulation under the Clean Air Act that overrides state-level regulations and is imposed upon a single pollution source. The study about this Pennsylvania power plant located on the PA New Jersey border highlights a fact that regulating air pollution is not easy because it is a kind of pollution that can travel across state borders. The approach we currently use, which relies on each individual state to meet the air quality standards set by the EPA is not fully effective. I hope the study about the Pennsylvania power plant can draw policymakers' attention regarding the importance and necessity of using direct federal-level regulation on pollution source in solving the cross-border air pollution problem. Right, and and clearly the, the, the problem is that state borders, you know, we don't have huge walls or anything that stops, you know, uh, whatever is in the wind from going back and forth across those. And that's right. So anything that doesn't regulate, um, you know, across those borders um, certainly just can't be effective, right? That's right. Now, you also looked at um, increased residential noise pollution, in this case stemming from proximity to air traffic. 
and how that could increase having low birth weight babies for mothers living close to the airport in the direction of the runway. And with that one, that was prompted just like the uh, power plant one with a change in EPA regulations. Um, There was a change in a federal aviation administration regulation Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. kind of changed circumstances for people who lived near airports. Um, Can you talk about what that, and this is interesting because you talk about how your work affects policy. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's a case where a policy decision was made probably for reasons that made sense to the people who made it, um, Mm -hmm. but had, you know, these unintended consequences. Yes, that's right. So if you purchase a house, you can choose things on the ground, but you do not have the control on things over your head. Now, what, what was the change that the FAA made? Oh, this is a new thing called the Next Generation Air Transportation System, initiated and implemented by the FAA. The new system uses precision satellite monitoring. Uh, this replaces the old-fashioned radar-based surveillance So the result is allowing more airplanes to be able to fly closer to one another on the same path that is optimal in terms of minimizing the distance and saving fuel. As a result, the flight paths have become more concentrated than before. And those living underneath have become the victims of an unexpected air show. (laughs) And there have been studies about the trade-off between Uh, the flight path optimization and adult health measured by reduced quality adjusted life years. And our study broadens the scope of that finding by taking into account compromised fetal health as a result of flight path optimization. And and what did the, the study find in terms of the effect on pregnant women and their babies? Yes, we do find adverse birth outcome related to uh, living close to the airport, specifically in the direction of the runway. And there is a significant increase uh, in the incidence of low birth weight babies and also preterms among mothers who live uh, in our setting within five miles of the airport in the direction of the runway. Hey, you know, it's, it strikes me as you talk about this that... Um, I, you know, in terms of bright street lights, in terms of air traffic, I think a lot of people feel like, well, you know, if you live there, you get used to it. And it sounds mm-hmm. like from the results of your studies that, you know, it, you not only don't get used to it, but it, it has direct impacts on. Yeah, this uh, is actually a very important question. Yeah. So noise pollution actually sometimes is referred to as silent killer. Hmm. Why? Because the connection is this activation of the central stress system, central stress response system of a human body and the so-called HPA axis. And this activation by noise can lead to disrupted sleep, increased release of stress hormones and increased blood pressure. One important feature of this response of the HPA system in our body is that it doesn't require cognitive perception of the noise. So that means if you just make peace with the noise, it doesn't mean nothing will happen to your body when oh. you are exposed to a higher level of noise. That's very interesting. I had not heard that before. Now, I, I know that you've also um, been working on a study related to water pollution uh, recently, mm-hmm. but that has not been completed. Can you just 
kind of give us the broad outlines of that at this point? Yeah, this is an ongoing project looking into the recent lead in drinking water crisis in Newark, New Jersey. Mm. This study highlights the issue of lead exposure, which is prevalent in the U.S. because of the large number of lead pipes as part of our aging infrastructure. In this study, we exploit uh, exogenous variation in the exposure to lead in tap water across similar mothers within the same locality in order to reinfer the causal effects on birth outcomes. And we are still uh, still working on it. Okay, we'll check back with you once that one is published as well. well. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Besides pollution, you've also um, looked at uh, the the connections between, I guess, broadly working conditions for pregnant women and adverse birth outcomes. Um, you had a study in in which you looked at pregnant women who commute fifty miles or more to work each way. Can mm-hmm. you talk about? what you found with that and again what what implications might be for you know women who have to commute a long way when mm-hmm. pregnant mm-hmm. yes yes so for the study on the long commutes to work during pregnancy we find that among long distance commuters who travel at least 50 miles to work increasing the travel distance by, uh, during pregnancy by 10 miles could potentially increase the risk of having a lower birth weight baby by about 14%. Hmm. In addition to maternal stress induced by this long commute being one potential mechanism, we also find evidence of long commutes during pregnancy being associated with underutilization of prenatal care. Our study uh, also highlights a self-reinforcing mechanism among pregnant women who are long commuters, which is this those who are in greater need of prenatal care because of the potential adverse effects of stress triggered by the long commutes are actually underutilizing prenatal care, which could lead to even worse birth outcomes. One possible way to break this self-reinforcing mechanism is facilitating the utilization of prenatal care. For example, through the expansion of uh, maternity leave to cover the prenatal period. Uh, Here, I want to mention that uh, even in the era of remote working becoming permanent, Mm -hmm. remote working itself doesn't necessarily make prenatal care an easy thing to do. Therefore, it is still an important policy question regarding how to facilitate the usage of prenatal care even when remote working becomes a permanent option. Another um, working condition aspect that you looked at involved mm-hmm. pregnant women with uh, work that was um, measured as more strenuous. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about what what that study found? What what constitutes more strenuous work where it would have an effect on birth outcomes, and what that may indicate about policies, you know, particularly about workplace accommodation. Arguably, this is the first study providing empirical evidence of maternal and fetal health effects of working during pregnancy. We are able to do this study because of a unique data set from the New Jersey Department of Health, which includes information not only on pregnancy and birth outcomes, but also on maternal employment. 
So in this data set, we observe information on the occupation of each mother. And then using this information, we are able to get a, a numerical value called the metabolic equivalence of task, which will indicate how high or how low the physical activity is, how demanding the physical activity is. Yeah, in terms of then those who were doing work that was more physically demanding, mm -hmm. um, what, what were the effects that you saw? Yeah, so we focus on empirical setting where laws regarding reasonable accommodation for pregnant women are already in place. But we still find evidence that working in a strenuous job during pregnancy increases the likelihood of a specific adverse birth outcome called fetal macrosomia by about 17%. So fetal macrosomia refers to birth weight above 4,000 grams or 8.8 .8 pounds. pounds. Hmm. So yeah, although we do not find effects on other birth outcomes such as low birth weight or preterms, our finding of a significant increase in fetal macrosomia nevertheless highlights a possible deficiency of existing accommodation laws intended to protect pregnant workers. Uh, in addition, our study indicates an understudied link between gestational diabetes, which actually is a known risk factor for fetal macrosomia, wow. and intensive physical activities at work during pregnancy, potentially mediated by disrupted sleep due to greater work intensity. This has all been very interesting, and it reminds me of, of something you had said when we first talked about your research um, three years ago. And uh, I'll read back that quote um, <laughs> where you had said, as an economist, I am always thinking about trade-offs, the benefits and costs of decisions, as well as the unintended consequences such as externalities. And I'm wondering what insights you've gained about those trade-offs um, from your research in the area of fetal and infant health in particular over the years of, of looking at these kinds of issues. Usually the trade-off is a result of making an optimal decision under constraints. If there are no constraints, there will be no trade-offs. And very often the trade-off is not a situation that is unique to a single person, a single state, or a single country. So I think it is important to learn from others about how to deal with the trade-off. Uh, here, let me use light pollution as an example. Okay. A bright night sky is often viewed as a symbol of prosperity. Indeed, uh, some economic studies have already used satellite imagery data of nighttime sky brightness to infer economic growth. So it appears that artificial lighting at night is the price we have to pay for economic development. But in reality, it doesn't have to be this way. Hmm. Take the comparison between the US and Germany as an example. Studies have shown that cities in the US use many times more artificial lighting at night per capita than cities in Germany. Some of the difference in lighting usage could be explained by the fact that cities and towns in Germany are lit much more conservatively at night. So this comparison between two equally 
prosperous countries highlights the possibility that light pollution is still a choice, which should be made after careful consideration of all of its potential costs and benefits. So in the case of light pollution and more generally, I believe there is always a lot to learn from others in mm-hmm. dealing with the trade-off that comes from making an optimal decision under constraints. We uh, need to be careful observers. Yeah, because I know in most of the, the cases that I'm familiar with, at least, regarding the brightness of lights in cities, the discussion seems to focus almost exclusively on safety and that that's right. Having it look as bright as day will make your city safer. Um, yes. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that you know these other factors are even discussed as they're they're uh, making those kinds of decisions. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, so there have been legislation in the U.S. about the proper use of street lighting, and actually more recently in January 2019, April 2020, lawmakers in Massachusetts also introduced bills in the House and Senate, uh, including a call to study the adverse health impact of excess light exposure Mm. and aimed at reducing light pollution through uh, shielding roadway and public lighting. I also want to mention that in the the EU, the European Union has issued a call for all outdoor lighting to follow the rule of lighting at levels as low as reasonably achievable. And this is commonly known as ALARA. So this call uh, is really uh, combined with the expectation that streetlights should not radiate above a horizontal plane from the source and requires that street lighting should dim at curfew. So in our study of light pollution suggests that we should be aware of the health effects of lighting at night. Dr. Yang, I'd like to thank you for being with us. And it's well, been, thank you for giving me this opportunity. Yeah, it's, it's been most interesting. Um, and it, it's been um, fun kind of being able to put all of the work you've been doing in, in perspective and kind of look at it as a whole. So, and we look forward to as you continue exploring these areas of talking with you again. Okay. Among other examples of Dr. Young's research are the peer effects in physicians' new drug prescription behaviors, the impact of publicly reported provider quality information on coronary artery bypass graft markets, the impact of exposure to food advertising on purchasing behaviors, the roles of nationality and ethnicity in international and interregional trade, the effects of signaling behaviors on college admission outcomes, And as he mentioned uh, early on, the effects of paid maternity leave on breastfeeding practices. This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business blog. To hear more podcasts featuring Lehigh Business thought leaders, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu slash news. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Lehigh Business. I'm Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast. Thanks for listening.